0: Thanks for joining our webcast. Today, we're pleased to present Putting the Lean in Lean Startup. I'm Melissa Tategan, Executive Producer of the Lean Startup Conference, happening December 9-11. Visit leanstartup.co for more information. Our speakers today are John Shuck and Eric Reese. Thirty years ago, John Shuck, an industrial anthropologist, moved to Japan to learn more about lean manufacturing. Toyota hired him, and later, Shook helped transfer their lean production and management systems to the US. Now the CEO of LEI, Shook is also the author of Managing to Learn and the co author of Learning to See and Kaizen Express. Eric Reese is the co host of the Lean Startup Conference, an entrepreneur, and the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Lean Startup. This is a 45 minute program, and the recording will be available a few days after this live webcast. Take it away, guys.
1: Hello. Hey, everybody. Uh, thank you very much for joining in on another Lean Startup webcast. Uh, we are very excited to have today a, a legend in the world of Lean, uh, John Shook. Now, uh, I'll let John speak in a moment, but, but I just wanted to give a little bit of context for why we're having this webcast and, and what we're going to talk about. Uh, I get asked all the time in my travels, hey, why did you call it Lean Startup? Uh, you know, because some people think lean means cheap, some people think lean means emaciated and therefore you don't have enough money or you're bootstrapped. People have a lot of misconceptions about lean. They say, why'd you call it lean startup? Shouldn't you have picked a different name for it? And what I try to explain to them is it wasn't really my choice. Lean is a thing. It already existed before there was lean startup. And lean startup is, is just a more accurate, the most accurate way I can think of to describe the philosophy that we espouse, namely the application of lean principles to the context of entrepreneurship or a startup situation, a situation of high uncertainty. Uh, So to me, that was just a matter of intellectual integrity to be clear about what it is that we're doing. And most people who I say that to say, what's lean, what do you mean? And I said, well, it's this thing with manufacturing. And system." So I started to, start to talk about the history of it. And people's eyes glazed over, like, wait, what are you talking about? I thought this was going to be some startup thing with MVPs and bumper stickers and whatever. And I said, OK, one of our missions in the Lean Startup Conference is to try to bridge uh, these two communities. Because for those of you who are my followers, you may not be familiar with the fact there's this much broader lean world out there. And I hope we uh, even have some people tuning in to the webcast who are uh, some of John's followers who may not be so familiar with the startup part of Lean Startup. So we have kind of these two very excited, very uh, passionate communities, and I hope one thing we can do is bring them together. So there's really no better person uh, for us to talk to than John Shook. And, and I'm personally very interested to hear the story because uh, John was one of the first Americans to to learn about uh, what is now called lean production, to travel to Japan, to be part of Toyota, uh, bringing that production system to the United States. And when I put it that way, you're like, yeah, yeah, of course. You know, it was a good idea. Of course, it had to be translated everywhere in the world. But I'm really curious to know about the details. Okay, like what was it like to actually be there, see it firsthand, to participate in that world-changing event? So, John, thank you very much for being here. And I'm very eager to to, to hear the whole story.
2: Thanks, Eric. Good to be here good to be here uh, to talk about our mutual favorite topic, which is uh, Lean.
1: That's right. That's right. And, and for those that don't know, John is the president of LEI, which is the Lean Enterprise Institute. Um, and so, you know, for me, this is like a, a dream come true. And we started talking about Lean, and now now here I am uh, with Mr. Lean himself. So, so I'm very excited. No, you can't call me that. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding.
2: But I have been around this for a while, and it is it's just a lot of fun. And actually, just to, to say now, I also really appreciate the... Uh, the the energy, the enthusiasm that you're bringing to this. Um, I didn't invent the word word lean, It certainly didn't invent the total production system, but there's some exciting ideas that we believe, uh, you do, I do, uh, that can really, that can make the world a better place. Uh, It has been doing that, it can continue to do that, uh, especially if we do our jobs, which is help people understand how this, they can bring this way of thinking, this way of working to their work lives.
1: Well, thank you. I, I, that means a lot to me, actually, to hear you say that, so, so I appreciate it. So let's, let's actually get into it. Um, do you want to just give a, a very brief introduction to, to what Lean is as you see it, uh, just for people maybe who are not familiar with, with the LEI
2: version of Lean? Okay. Uh, by Lean, I mean, it's, it's interesting you ask now. It happens to be exactly 25 years ago uh, that Lean became mm-hmm. what we call this, this, this way of working. Uh, There was a paper that was written uh, by an MIT researcher, Um, and they had spent, they had just spent five years, uh, famously five years and $5 million, which to do this kind of research back in the 80s was a lot of money. Um, And they were looking at every automobile company in the world, except a lot of the ones behind the iron iron curtain that they couldn't get into. And after they did that, they realized that there was one company that had radically better performance than all the others. And not only did it have radically better performance, it worked in a radically different way. And they put those together, and they said, "We have some sort of cause and effect here." Uh, and they realized they were onto something very important. So they said, "Well, we should call it something." And that's always a decision at a point like this, right? You don't have to call it something. You could call it something, or at least something very vague, very general. But they they decided we should have something that we can refer to, so we we can have conversations. We know what we're talking about. Um, It was a small room, I'm talking to you today, actually in Kendall Square, Cambridge, and um, right across the street from MIT, where there was a group of uh, researchers, uh, scientists, sitting in a room 25 years ago, said, what shall we call this? There was a debate. Uh, I wasn't there. I was actually working for Toyota in Japan. I had no one, I had no idea that anyone on the outside was looking at this. None of us did in Toyota City. Uh, And they had all kinds of ideas. One person said, let's call it fragile. Uh, because if everything doesn't work right, the whole thing falls apart. It's a real system. That was the inspiration for that word, I think. And in the end, they decided on lean. Um, is goodness. that the right word? Because I think we realize it's a very holistic system. It's very it's, there's a lot of richness in, in this way of working. Does the word lean really capture that? It's hard to say. But all it means, and I think this is very much at the spirit of, of what you're doing with the lean startup. It's 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 weird taking customer-needed value, and understanding how we can produce that, provide that, create that with minimum resources through teams, through people engaged in doing the work in ways that has continuous innovation and solving problems in their own work every day all the time, quick cycles of learning. So that's ultimately what we're talking about. And and for that reason, I think the word lean is okay. That's where it came from. Uh, The inspiration was uh, from having studied the Toyota production system.
1: So, uh, so let's actually go. If you wouldn't mind, I'd love to hear a little bit about your personal story because it's not like uh, you know we're talking about the the early eighties here. It's not like there were a lot of Americans working uh, in Japan at that time, and it's and um, no. and certainly not at Toyota uh, actually doing the things that we all then later came to talk about. So how did that how did that come to pass?
2: Well, not that I like to talk about myself, but to make, it, but this is a personal journey, really. I mean, yeah. life in business no. is a personal journey, and so in my case, it goes back to the really to the mid 1970s, when there was a huge boom in the U.S. around Japanese management, and there are many books uh, written about it, and everyone knew that Japanese companies were taking market share in the U.S. consumer electronics, uh, and automobiles, and 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 many others so i like many people became interested in this uh but not like so many i decided in 1977 to go to japan and try to see to see it firsthand and i visited a number of companies uh not toyota and including nissan and uh, fanuc and uh, panasonic and some others and decided yes there is something here that's that 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 i want to learn more about it was really a personal journey i said i wanted to learn more about this and i spent a few years uh, trying to learn the Japanese language. When I first arrived uh, there, I did not speak, I didn't know I didn't know sushi, I didn't know konnichiwa, not a single word. Uh, when I graduated college, I had never met a Japanese person. Uh, so no wow. connection whatsoever. And um, by 1983, I decided that I wanted to, to live in Japan for a few years, to work for the biggest, most Japanese company I could find. Um, to me, they were still basically all the same. There was something Japanese that I was looking for, a cultural answer. Um, but after I arrived there and began looking for a job, uh, I quickly found that Japanese companies didn't hire foreigners uh, except to teach English or, or to, uh, to translate. My Japanese still wasn't good enough to translate, and I wasn't going to teach English. So I spent a number of months, really, uh, knocking on doors. It was only when I finally came to Toyota. They had just signed the agreement with General Motors to do a joint venture together uh, in Fremont, California. Uh, to build cars using uh, at a, at a, using UAW labor. Uh, in the United States, uh, General Motors was looking for a small car that they could make profitably. Toyota was looking at a way that, to learn how to operate in North America quickly. They had literally just uh, signed the agreement to do this when I knocked on their door, and so they grabbed me, pulled me inside, and so I was the only American there for a period of time. Uh, me and 70,000 Japanese trying to figure out how do you take this production management system and make it work in north america as you said a moment ago this seems obvious enough now that this would work anywhere we they really didn't know we really didn't know at the time can you can you could this work with some general motors managers and uaw workers we didn't know and so that began a long period of experimentation uh, to learn to learn about it for me it was perfect because before i could help them with this project uh, to teach anyone anything they had to teach me first Uh, so that began uh, my, my learning process and the way you learn this is through doing uh, as you know, this is not something where you learn just through reading books. Uh, it's not something where you make decisions just by sitting in a room and arguing. It's where you go out and do. And that's the first thing that I had to do. And everyone who's learned this ever since, uh, that's what we do. As we get out, we go to the Gemba, as we say, go uh, to do the work. So I had to build cars on the assembly line and uh, eventually then was working in California uh, on that project. And here we are uh, 30 years later, uh, and you've started a whole new movement. Taking these ideas to different areas, different places—it's been an amazing journey and an exciting thing to see to, to, to see happen.
1: Well, i, I, I mean, it's just—it's totally fascinating, and I, I think, for me, one of the things I love about the story uh, it's just the sense of possibility about it. Because, you know, when I talk to people about changing, you know, management culture among startups, changing entrepreneurial management, the biggest issue to overcome is the skepticism that people have that change is even possible. And so, another reason I love the connection. Uh, to the lean community is just to say, look, this has been done before. This isn't the first time people have tried to create this kind of world-changing uh, uh, change, starting with an idea and turning it into a practice, but, it, but it's been done before. Uh, but, you know, I think there's probably a lot of people listening who don't know the Numi story. And so could you just tell a little bit about the context of that plant of the joint venture with GM? Like, my recollection is that Numi was one of the first performing plants and they were going to shut it
2: down. Uh, yes, and the words you just used were all really appropriate. You're talking about changing culture, and yep. you, we are always dealing with skepticism. And, and uh, you know, in a healthy dose of skepticism is okay. When it turns into cynicism, which it often does, then that's that's hard to overcome. But the the, the, the degree of difficulty that we had in this first experiment uh, in in Fremont, it was called NUMI. It, st- it stands for New United Motor Manufacturing Inc. It was supposed to sound like new me and um, so in, to indicate a, a major change in personality and, and culture. And as you said, it was a, a, a horrible plant. In fact, it was the certified worst plant in the world. Certified in a couple of ways. At that point, in the early 1980s, General Motors products were, this is no secret, uh, were not very good. Quality, this was a, a, a dark era in General Motors history. I'm a big fan of General Motors, don't, don't get me wrong. I have plenty of friends at General Motors, I love them. But this was uh, this was a, they, they were experiencing tough times, and this plant of all their, theirs in the world was the worst, or one of the two worst. Uh, and they knew this from quality scores. They did a quality audit, you know, every quarter, and this plant was at the bottom, uh, and the worst workforce. And the workforce was so bad that even the UAW said, "We can't work with these people. They're crazy." Uh, they would go out on strike against the worker, the union's own rules. Uh, the stories that, that, that uh, of, of the old plant before it became a joint venture are just amazing. Uh, uh, the one famous one was of a, of, a, of a worker who was loosening tie rod bolts underneath the car. So as they were exiting the plant, uh, it was it was going to be a danger. They, they were going to fall off. People were going to have, you know, there were going to be accidents. Uh, one day they found one of those and checked, and there were 200 of them because the worker was unhappy. So this is a classic example of a disgruntled uh, union workforce um, you couldn't have a worse culture than than was than existed in that plant. Um, so I joined Toyota really exactly 30 years ago. Uh, it was late 1983. Uh, we built our first car there uh, at Numi in, in the old General Motors plant in December 1984, so just one year. And with the same workforce, a lot of people don't realize it was actually the very same workforce. The old troublemakers were offered their jobs back, and I know that I worked a, a, alongside them. And in one year, um, the first, we built our first car, and when GM did their first quality audit, it set a record for the very best quality, quality score any GM plant had ever gotten with the same workforce. And the same workers who were so disgruntled and unhappy before were powerful advocates for the system for this way of working, just as you, just as you are now. Mm-hmm. Um, so the turnaround was remarkable. And in my mind, uh, going back at that time, this just proved that this would work and this would work anywhere. And I still see people using culture, their corporate culture as an excuse or their national culture as an excuse. And culture is something to be deal- dealt with for sure, whether it's national culture or corporate culture, but it's something to be dealt with, a problem just like any other. What is our situation? How is it we want to work on behalf of the customer and what can we do to start getting there? So that's what we put in place uh, at NUME, uh 30 years ago. Remarkable story. Um, and uh, it, it, it's one that I think does serve if you're thinking of large companies doing a transformation or for startups uh, who have an ambition to become a, you know, a, big, a great company as well. I think the lessons are there.
1: Yeah, so one of the problems I have with the Numi story is that it's, it's almost too good to be true. Mm-hmm. It's like the, the scope of the success is so unbelievable. I, I think when people look at, at their dysfunctional company that they're in today, and believe me, I meet with companies that are quite small and already have a dysfunctional culture, and people are already starting to say, well, we can't do that because our culture is messed up. We, you know, we have to change the culture before we can we can get any better but then how are you gonna change the culture like what we'll do we'll change the culture by changing the culture it's like well that that's a tautology that's not gonna work what are you actually gonna do so so it's like to to hear that you could take the worst plan in the world to to the best in North America in one year it almost seems too good to be true Like, like what was it actually like on the ground what did you actually do
2: to make a change um first of all I think the way you put it was exactly right people think they need to somehow just change their culture and honestly, going back at that time, I had studied uh, uh, anthropology. Um, and by the time I arrived in Toyota City, I'd read every book there was about Japanese management. I knew everything from a book standpoint. I knew Japanese culture very well. And I had an idea that to work in a different way, you had to somehow change the culture first. And I still see companies trying to do this. But what I found, by, you know, looking back a few years later, that what was happening is we changed the way we behaved that then changed the attitudes of the people that work there. That brought forth a whole new culture. So one of the ways we, uh, I like to say this, uh, and, and I, did, I didn't come up with this, I'm not exactly sure where it first came from, but rather than think your way to a new way of acting, to try to act your way to a new way of thinking. So how is it we want to think? What's the kind of culture we want? Let's try to draw a picture of that. And what do we need to do to get there? So we started working on the behaviors. What do we actually need to do? So we changed the work. The first thing we did, we went to that workforce and we said, first of all, uh, what's been going on, as you've been working there a number of years, and they basically all felt that they suck. They've been told for years that they do. They produce crappy quality. Uh, they, they would hear about it from their kids who would hear about it in the school. And we told them, no, you don't have to suck. And we said, here's how you can go about changing that. We, we said, you don't have to, trust us, here's a way of working. And then we went through, together with them, a process of creating each job, designing each job so that each worker is actually involved and engaged, and continuously finding problems, solving problems, and that enables you to do innovation on, on behalf of the customer. So it does sound easy, and I almost hate using those words because it trivializes it. There was tremendous hard work. Some, a lot of it was out on the plant floor, uh, solving problems, fighting, arguing. A lot of it was uh, being across the street in the union hall to late at night, arguing about, uh, you know, concepts and principles, of how we want to work together, uh, sometimes drinking beer. Uh, and some, some long—it was hard work, but it was focused on the work. It was gaining a mutual trust about why we want to be here, how we're going to work together for our, our own mutual benefit. Uh, and it, at the end of the day, those were the things we did. Um, and, and you're right, it could sound almost too good to be true. There was tremendous investment, uh, I will say. Um, there was a process where uh, everyone who supervised anyone uh, went to Toyota for Toyota City for a couple of weeks to see what the system looked like, so you could feel it and touch it, so you could understand that culture. Mm-hmm. And then there were a lot of mentors and coaches. Uh, who were sent over as well. So you could actually do person-to-person coaching as the work takes place. So not a lot of uh, upfront training so much as kind of training or development through the job or through the work. Learning by doing. Learning by doing. And and it's another one of those sets of words that sounds so easy and simple to Mm -hmm. learn through doing. But people sometimes interpret that as, well, just do and somehow by osmosis you'll learn. You have to be much more... You have to be more intention and deliberative than that. You have to structure the work so you really can learn, so you encourage the learning as you go through the processes of running cycles of, through learning cycles. Not unlike, I think, what you do with, uh, with the Lean Startup tools.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, we, we call it Build, Measure, Learn. But, you know, PDCA and, and uh, you know, in the military they call it OODA. There's, there's a lot of these related theories that have this concept that the faster you're able to learn about the work that you're doing, the more successful you'll be able to be and i think one of the key lessons yes. is that i've taken away certainly from a, from from studying uh manufacturing and all these other theories is that the structure of the work is a choice it's not imposed on you from on high you can choose to structure your work so that it can be done in an iterative way so that the problem is broken down small enough so that you can test different approaches and so that you can learn if you make that investment in process then you will start to see a change in culture but not
2: I agree 100%. And so I think it means being deliberate yeah, um, and not sitting back and saying, well, it was me and wishing the culture was different, but what specifically can I do to structure the work differently? And that's true at the high, highest level of the organization, mm-hmm. and then you need to find ways so that people do the same thing all the way throughout the organization. So you have that alignment yeah. top, top to bottom. So you work at the macro level and the micro level using the same principles, the same practices.
1: Yeah, well, and I was reading a book um, about it. I, I think it was. Uh, I think it was. This, this was in the Toyota Way to Lean Leadership. I'm sure you know that book. And it was just a, a story about the the way in which Toyota had brought their production system to the United States. And the thing that really struck me was the incredible amount of resources and time and energy that was invested by Toyota in that change. I mean, bringing people from the U.S. workers and managers to Toyota City to see. I, mean, just, I was thinking about the travel budget. And then they would have managers from Toyota come and live in the United States and shadow their American counterparts to, to act as a coach and a mentor. So the loss of, of productivity of those people not doing their main jobs, the cost of having them live I mean, just the the attention to detail and the level of investing. And yes. I can imagine so many companies say, Well, we can't afford to do that. But they can't afford to keep making crappy products. And they can't afford to to lose out to lose market share to their competitors. It's like somehow the, 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 the thought that if you want to see a profound change, it requires profound effort. Uh, some people seem to have got lost, missed that memo. What, why do you think Toyota is able to, to sustain that kind of investment?
2: Why have they been able to sustain that investment? I, I think one of the things has to do with, with balance. So in the same way you want to work at the top macro levels and the micro levels of the organization, you also want to work short-term and long-term. -hmm. And this is one of those things that you see individuals or organizations being good at one or the other. So I'm good at really making the quarter, yeah, yeah, making the quarter or just quick cycle loops of PDC or learning cycles. But what about on the yearly basis or the macro project basis or the five or ten year you know horizon? If If that if that's if your aim is to create an organization that actually is going to be has success measured at that level. On the other hand, organizations that think long term don't know how to break those down into smaller and smaller cycles so effectively. So a lot of it, I think, is take understanding and learning how to take big bets and breaking them down into smaller and smaller, small chunks of bets so that you're learning your way through. You know where you're going. You have a, some, your, your, your vision or your, your true north, we like, we like to call it, is very clear. But you're going to meander your way there, and you're going to find your because you're going to encounter obstacles that could not have been uh, predicted, even in something that's as relatively, relatively stable as the automobile industry or a car factory. Now, you know, that, that, that level of uncertainty is greater uh, when, you're, when you're involved in a, in a startup and you're not, not even sure who your customer is, but it's still, it's really true at any level of business. The uncertainty right. is there. And, uh, you know, I, I think Toyota, NUMI itself was a kind of a, there were lean startup principles at play, I think, when they did that. If you think of, by the, by the time Toyota was creating a joint venture with General Motors, uh, Nissan and Honda were already operating in North America. Toyota needed they needed to operate in North America as well, and part of the reason was political, to be sure. But they didn't have to do it uh, through a joint venture with their biggest competitor, uh, with the UAW, for crying out loud. But whereas General Motors had a very clear traditional ROI that led them to the, to the decision to do a joint venture with Toyota. They were going to get a small car that they could make profitably. They were going to get a, a, a plant that they had shut down, put it back to work, be productive again. An entire workforce, uh, the, the same. They were going to learn a new way of working, this Toyota production system, which was just be- becoming known at, at, at that time. The tangibles in their, in their business equation for the joint venture were very clear. In Toyota's case, uh, that was far from the, that was far from, that was far from true. They had a couple of things they wanted to learn. And they felt the way they could do that the fastest and with the least investment was to do it with General Motors at an existing factory. Now they gutted it and put in new equipment, but it was an existing factory, an existing workforce. So to be able, to, they were able then to learn very quickly. What they wanted to learn was basically two things. The biggest questions in our mind about what would, what, you know, working in North America, trying to take the Toyota production and management system from North America. First of all, how to work with American suppliers, because just in time requires a very close relationship with the entire supply base. And secondly, more importantly, is the American worker. Uh, That includes both both the blue-collar and white-collar. But what better way to learn than to have General Motors introduce you to the entire North American supply base, which is exactly what happened, and to even work with the UAW to learn how to work with American workers. So within one year, we do, yes, this will work. Uh, And to this day, I think it's really tweaks around the edges uh, as far as additional learnings that come along. But that basic proof, I think, goes back to to that time.
1: Yeah. You know, I'm always trying to tell people that whoever in business, whoever can learn the fastest is going to win, that that really is the basis of competition in in a modern economy. And so, you know, to me, the reason I admire Toyota so much is that they've built really a company that is built to learn. And that's a great example where understanding that the true ROI of an investment like that is not in the – Short-term profitability ROI, but rather in roi denominated learning. In lean startup, we would call it validated learning, but it's the same, same basic concept.
2: Yeah, John, I, have the same a, concept.
1: I have a million questions I, I want to ask you, but we promised the audience we would take some audience questions, and, and we got one here that's just perfect for Great. what we're talking about. So we got to start with this because uh, I, I get the sense that someone's asking a hypothetical question about their friend's company. You, you get those sometimes. I get those so, sometimes. So here's the question. How do you implement those changes when the forces that set you back are not the workforce but the managers at all? Question mark.
2: Um, let me make sure. So how do we deal and with it? you've got some experience with this. When the challenge is not the workers but the managers? Yeah. Well, first of all, it's always the managers and not the workers. So we have to realize that. So that means we, if we are managers, if we are the leaders, we have to look in the mirror. Um, that's where uh, it starts. It's not where it ends. People often ask, where do you start? Should you start at the top, you start in the middle, or you start at the front lines? And honestly, wherever you start, it's gonna be the other areas that are the problem. that have to be somehow brought along. And everyone and, and if you're working with someone as a frontline uh, man, frontline manager supervisor they'll often say well I could do this if I was one higher level higher up because my bosses those managers they don't get it I get it you go to talk to them they say I get it and uh, they'll say the problem is it's the, le- the level one 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 level higher up yeah. you go all the way up to the CEO and the most frustrated person in the company is the CEO because he or she can't get anything done that he or she wants done yeah what we have to do is flip some things on its head in terms of who's responsible for what. Managers who think the old command and control paradigms will work uh, quickly find out they don't. And so nowadays, command and control is quite discredited. But honestly, what is offered up in its place, it's often some sort of laissez-faire, let's just manage by ROI, let the numbers tell us what to do. And that's no better. Uh, Managers have to become engaged and first and foremost, decide that uh, change begins with me, that I have to learn first. My job is not to get other people to change. <laughs> My job is to change. It's one of those old junior high you know, sports you know, kind of cliché things, but it's really true. The only thing you can change is yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where, wherever we are, we have to work. I've met a lot of people that love to complain about, wish their, man, wish their boss was someone different. And uh, we could all wait you know, for Eric to come be our CEO, um, or we can begin not change we can begin change at our level, that's, that's all we can do. But, uh, you know, I think the questioner is correct in saying it's, 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 uh, that the, the, it's not about the frontline workers, it's about managers, but it's really about the management system. And this is one thing that I think, as I read the literature and talk with folks who, who are going through the, the Lean Startup Learning experience, is management does matter, how we think. So there's, so we, we talk a lot nowadays about lean management. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're not talking about an old bureaucratic process. Uh, you know, the word bureau, bureaucrat, bureaucrat comes from bureau, you know, where you sit, you're sitting at your desk. And we believe in getting out of the building and going to the Gemba. Um, but management does matter. So what's the management processes we can put in place so that people are being developed to improve, to, to find problems, to improve their, improve their work, and innovate on behalf of the customer? And that's on us to do that.
1: Yeah, you know, I think… One of the things that people find so counterintuitive, uh, certainly in the lean startup community, is I, I talk about management constantly. And, I, you know, I'm, one of the things I try to convince people is that entrepreneurship is management. Yes. Because an entrepreneur startup is not just an idea. It's not just a product. It's a group of people who have to act in a coordinated fashion. Well, that's management, whether you call it, no matter what you call it. That's right. That's so I really right. believe in entrepreneurial management, the, the discipline, the management discipline that deals with situations of high uncertainty. And I, I, uh, I just recently did an interview with, with Strategy and Business Magazine. You know, it's a, a very old school, traditional business magazine. Yes. And they called me up and they said, we hear that there's this startup guy who loves management. And we just had to know more. What is that? What are you talking about? What does that mean? What, you know, startups are supposed to be anti-management and anti-bureaucracy and anti-hierarchy. Now. And it's like, yes, we believe in a you know, uh, kind of management. So it doesn't look very much like the old system, but then neither does lean management look so much like the old system. It's, it's a very particular kind of, uh, relationship between the people that do the work and the people that support the people that do the work. And I find that one of the things that inspires me the most is I watch some of these lean startups start to grow up and become, you know, themselves start to become established companies is that by planning some of these seeds early, mastering some of these, uh, tools and principles in the lean startup phase, I hope it lays a foundation for them to grow up into a lean enterprise.
2: Yes, yes. Yeah, it it depends on what you want, what your dream is, right? If you really want to start up to flip pretty quickly, that's one thing. If you want to build an organization to last, to be successful the longer term, like like a Toyota, like an Apple, like a Tesla, Mm -hmm. then that means you're going to have to think about management. Yeah. Uh, and you take it out of this, you know, this dark cloud of something we don't want to think about and how to make it a positive force of change in organizations. So it's constantly renewing itself. So it's not a coercive management. You know, that, that is something that we that we don't want. To, to the extent that that's our image of what management is, yes, we don't want that. But it's it's enabling. It focuses on enabling individuals to take responsibility to propose solutions to problems that they own so that everyone's the entrepreneurial owner of their piece of work in the organization, whether it's five people, 500, or 50,000. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so, so you've been talking about your story. You talked about uh, going to Toyota, you know, being part of the new me change. Uh, you know, eventually then you, you came to the LEI and, and you've had a chance to work now in lean outside of manufacturing a lot of different, a lot of different industries. You want to tell us a little bit about that?
2: Well, I imagine our paths could cross even if we hadn't through this uh, these conversations in some of the places, because you're spreading out now, I think, into in traditional industry. Um, the last 10 years, I spent most of my time really not, not so much in traditional manufacturing, but uh, in healthcare, uh, some services. And one of the most gratifying things in my career so far, really, has been to see this take uh, spread as it has in healthcare. There's a there's a vibrant uh, lean healthcare movement uh, now in North America, and in a lot of other countries as well. And it's a great thing to see. Uh, I first gave a shot at doing a, a lean activity in a, in a, in, a, in healthcare 15 years ago in a clinic up uh-huh. in uh, or, in Oregon. And on the one hand, it went okay. On the other hand, I said this way more here than I'm going to try to tackle, and I didn't touch it again for years. Um, and then a few years uh-huh. ago, a uh, few uh, hospitals, uh, Virginia Mason in Seattle. Uh, Theta Care in Appleton, Wisconsin, started doing some deep learning and how they could bring these principles to the work of healthcare, where there's often tremendous uncertainty. Right, you don't know how an operation is going to go. For example, when you be, when you begin surgery in the emergency room, you don't know exactly who's going to walk through the door. Turns out these principles work great uh, in healthcare. It fits hand in glove, and that's why it's taken off as, as well as it has. So that's gratifying to see, and I'm sure it's going to do nothing but grow uh, in the future. Now what's happening now uh, that's very exciting is to see some of this starting to happen in government. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a little less hopeful of the federal government than that, that I am at the, more the state or local level. But some sure. states now are doing some very nice things. Uh, the state of Washington, uh, New Hampshire, and the governor's offices themselves are getting involved. And if they will embrace the essence of this, which is focusing on the customer. Now who's the customer for a state government? I hope it's you and me. Uh, right. lean, lean, lean taxes would be a nice thing. Uh, I, I could use some of that. And how we can get the people that are doing their work in the government to be focused on how they can make their jobs better on behalf of the customer, which is uh, the citizenry, uh, is, 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 again, an exciting get thing. Get you to come out
1: to, uh, oh, go ahead. Sorry, sorry, uh, you cut out there. Go ahead.
2: That's an exciting thing, and I think it's going to be growing uh, uh, exponentially in the future.
1: I, I certainly think so. We should get you to come out to uh, Code for America, which is a group out here that works with civic governments, so cities, trying to get them yes. to implement lean. Uh, it tends to be on the, you know, starting with the IT and procurement side of the uh, of the house, and it's it's fascinating because cities have a lot more flexibility to to operate the way they want. So because they're smaller, there's a lot more opportunity for change. So I think you'd you'd love some of the stuff that they're doing there.
2: It's smaller, more opportunity for change, and I think the customer closer. Uh, that's right. By the time it gets to Washington, it's it's a very comp- very complex yeah. situation. States are large, but at least that's that's a lot. You're close. To, your feet are closer to the ground.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Well, and and the idea that you should go go to where the work is done, go see the customer for yourself, that, yes. that has a certain resonance with people who actually deal with citizens on a regular basis, versus yes. only ever talking to lobbyists and the
2: media. Exactly. Exactly.
1: Um, all right, another question is coming in, which is how do we keep the lean startup mentality as you grow? And maybe if I could twist that question a little bit, one of the things I believe is that, you know, CEOs of tiny CEOs of industrial companies and healthcare, we, we, we work with a lot of people, you and I, who I think have a shared vision for what the company of the future is going to look like. And I'm curious, so, all right, so as, in order to keep this mentality as you grow, you've got to have a vision of where we're headed. What do you think that company in the future is going to look like?
2: Um, I think think you're right. I think, as you mentioned a few moments ago as well, we need to be thinking about how we want to work even as we start growing. Uh, Once we get large and then want to change, uh, there's a lot of rework to do. If we can start thinking about how to have that entrepreneurial attitude from the very beginning and structure the work that way, ultimately we're talking about changing habits, changing habits of individuals as I do my work. Uh, work teams, but also at at the highest levels of, of an organization uh, as well. I think the the, the organization of the future is going to be one that has to be highly adaptive. So yeah. how do you have consistency toward your purpose, toward your your ultimate mission or true north, and at the same time be adaptive? Adaptive. I, th- I think having that understanding, the trade-off curve between those two is very important. And there's often going to be a balance. I think that kind of goes between uh, one and the other. Um, and how? Also, I think the organization of the future—it's going to look more the same at the higher levels all the way down through the organization. Uh, you're going to—you're going to see people that are basically bringing science to their work, and breaking things that are large problems into smaller problems, and running experiments and doing uh, again. Do we use the, the term validated learning on their experience on their experiments from a moment to, a moment to moment basis? I think that's what it'll look like. So a lot of people look to IT solutions, and it's going to be more of a virtual organization, and I don't know about that. It could be true. I think either way, I think those basic principles of how we work uh, is really the issue, not the structure per se.
1: Yeah. You know, I get. I, I, we were talking uh, uh, in prep for this webcast about the fact that I get asked all the time for a lean startup in a box, you know, what's the IT solution that will allow me to – lean startup into Mike, and i've been telling people for years listening can make a lot of money selling those kind of solutions but i don't think they fundamentally will work and i've been using this analogy and i'd love to check the analogy out with you to see if you think it's it's right because you were actually there I, I talk a lot about what happened when american managers first saw what was happening in japan the level of automation and the high-tech factory and and basically the conclusion i always imagine that they go explain how the toyota system works and they would say oh it's respect for people and you know explain kaizen and you know all this stuff, you can imagine Americans being like, yeah, 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 that's the fluffy stuff, okay, but show me the real thing, and they go to see the factory, and they say, aha, I got it, it's robots. So they come back and, and spend billions of dollars on robots, uh, you know, trying to solve that problem, and of course, robots don't, don't matter unless you have the right culture and, and system in place, you know, from a management point of view. So first of all, do, like, is that basically right, and do you buy my analogy that people looking for lean startup in a box are basically looking for robots to solve the problem
2: for them? Well, I think the uh, desire for automation to automate out our people problems goes back a long way, and yeah. uh, it's not going in, going away uh, any time soon. But ultimately, I, I, I think you have to look at how people do their work at the micro-levels. Mm-hmm. And there's still, even if it's an IT or robotic solution, someone is designing the robot, someone has to maintain the robot. Um, and what we've seen is those kinds of changes haven't made a fundamental, a fundamental difference. Wanting change in a box has, looking back at the uh, the the lean, the lean production and the lean management movement of the last twenty thirty years twenty five years, um, it, on the it's understandable that people want change in a box, and it has it does become a cottage industry and people do sell those, and in fact you may be able to get some positive change for a while. But ultimately, it comes down to much more fundamental things like that. And I think you and I are completely, I agree completely with the way you characterize it. And as we try to focus on things that can help give us, get us to quick change, anytime we think it's going to be easy, I think we're fooling ourselves.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Okay. We uh we are basically out of time, uh, but I feel like we are just getting this conversation started. And I, I you know, first of all, uh, want to remind everybody that John will be our guest as a speaker uh, at the conference, so you can you can hear his thoughts uh, and and meet him in person if you like, uh, December ninth and tenth in San Francisco. Leanstartup.co. Uh, I wanted to kind of close with a with a story slash question, because I, I was on a factory tour this year that really made a profound Im- impact on me. And uh, uh, it was an appliance factory, and I, I won't say what company or what, what, what appliance it was, but if it, you can imagine. Uh, and, and I was actually incredibly impressed. This was a factory that was itself going through a lean trend. All these whiteboards—they ripped out all its ERP software and put up whiteboards everywhere. And saw all the things you'd expect to see, um, really working through each defect, and, and they were tracking like shift by shift, hour by hour, improvements in quality to eliminate waste. And I actually had not spent a lot of time in factories. Um, So I was really, one thing that really just moved me was the amount of manual labor that still goes into what seems like a highly automated uh, device. So, you know, you push buttons on, I was thinking about my microwave in my kitchen. I got a microwave, I push a button. A human being hand-wired every button to the place that actuates what that button does. Even though, yes, there's a lot of software involved, like it's all a tremendous amount of craft and skill that goes into building that, that device. And I was very moved by it. But then I had this really difficult thought, which was, I was like, you know, how many of the buttons on my microwave have I ever pushed in my life? And I actually had to come home and I counted, I have 29 buttons on my microwave, of which I have ever pushed charitably three. And I was like, well, what what about the other 26 buttons? You know, is it possible that every single day uh, a human being is cranking out thousands and thousands of units of a device with buttons that are never pushed? Like, it was pushed. It would work exactly right every time. But fundamentally, uh, it's waste because we've over-designed this product in the first place. And I was like, well, whose fault is that? I was trying to think, okay, which of the traditional seven wastes is this? Is it the guy on the factory floor's fault? No, he's implementing the design. It's not the work group's fault. It's not the factory manager's fault. And so then I was like, well, it must be the product manager's fault who designed this product in the first place. But he got his directive from the category buyer, the alleged customer and the Retail environment who said, "Well, customers like it more if we have more buttons." Now he's not empowered to go run an experiment to see if that's really true, right? You can imagine we could put two versions of this appliance in two comparable stores and see do we actually sell more. So, so it's no individual persons. I couldn't find a single person in the organization whose fault it was, and yet the system is producing this outcome that even today when I think about this I cringe to think about the thousands and thousands of man hours of incredibly skilled labor going into precisely and perfectly implementing product features that are never used by a customer so so you know this is about in some ways it's about startups in some ways it's about enterprise i mean it's it's about the big picture and the spot so about all these things that like good use of people's time and energy so that it's not it's not wasted so i wanted to kind of check that out with you to see uh you know john give us your, your final word like how do we like what are, people are on the, uh, If people are watching this and they recognize that situation, they say, maybe I don't run a factory, but boy, I have engineers designing a product every day that customers fundamentally don't use. Or I'm, we're having tremendous scope creep in our IT implementation or on a construction site or, you know, all those things. If someone's really feeling that pain right now, uh, what can they do about it? Where, where, where should they start?
2: So I couldn't agree with you more. And the last thing we want to do is to work towards doing efficiently, you know, that which should not be done at all, right? And, you know, the, even the Toyota production system, what they really were when Toyota started putting this together back in the 50s is they were kind of integrators of technology that had come before them, whether it's the things they learned from Henry Ford, Edward Deming, and, and others. So it's the integration of this at, at the, truly at the interpro- enterprise level. And what you just described, I see that as well everywhere I go, which is a lack of integration, lack of a business team being able to work together at all levels. So you have a worker down there on the assembly line doing some really struggling and getting carpal tunnel for some work that really doesn't even need to be done at all. At the same time, there's someone up at the highest levels, and it's not a badly intentioned person who actually made that, created that design thinking it was for a customer who really may never actually use it. Um, I think some of these principles, keeping our, our... Eye on the prize in terms of these principles we've talked about is so important. And there's where also, I think, what you're bringing with with your emphasis, uh, combined with the traditional approach to to, to lean thinking, really can help solve some of the problems that you're raising. You talk about getting out of the building to go see what the customer really wants. And we talk about going to the gemba. Gemba being the Japanese word of, of a real place. Now... On the one hand, I think they mean the same thing. We're, we're empiricists. We're practical. We want to we want to understand what reality is telling us and respond to that. But over years, the nuance of go to the gemba in, in, in our world has often meant more go to the, the to the floor where the work is taking place, where you see someone struggling to do the work, just as you described, and also the energizing excitement of people as they t- as they take uh, as they be, as they take ownership of of the work that they now is theirs instead of just something handed to them. Mm -hmm. However, when there's a a break, though, between the design of that product on behalf of the customer, customer, which can come through your nuance that comes with go out of the building, I think what we realize is there's an opportunity for those to come together. So we get out of the building to go understand what the customer really needs so we can solve their problem together and go to the gimbal to see how the work is being done because no change in any organization, large or small, is going to matter until it actually it is actualized in the work of an individual who's doing the real value-creating work of the company. Mm-hmm. So with that, Eric, what I'd like to invite you to do is sometime let's, 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 let's go together and get out of the building and go see some customers and go to a Gemba and see some uh, factory work.
1: I'd be, I'd be absolutely delighted. Uh, I will absolutely take you up on that. I appreciate it. And when we're having you in Silicon Valley, we'll, uh, we'll have a chance to show you uh, uh, some Gembas like you've never seen. Great. So, uh, okay. so it will be a, a cultural exchange, if you will. Look forward to it. All right. Much appreciated. Uh, Listen, I really appreciate your time. I know we're we're over time here. You've been very generous and and appreciate it. On behalf of all of our attendees, I want to thank you. And just to remind everybody, uh, both John and I will be at the Lean Startup Conference. You can come see us December 9th and 10th. So take care, everybody. Thank you. Thanks.
0: Thanks to everyone for joining us today. This wraps up our show. Please join us again for the next webcast, Testing Lean Startup in Education, on November 21st. In the meantime, visit leanstartup.co for more information on the Lean Startup Conference held on December 9 to 11 in San Francisco. Goodbye.